Hello, hello. We're going to be hello. a brand new book today, Leviticus, and I'm with Jared Fetzer. Those of you that have been watching this series, Mark is moving on to other projects. He's been very busy lately since, you know, he's taking classes and stuff. He's decided to move on. And then um, now with Jared, uh, we did a podcast last time about his music and his insights on the end times. And uh, we're going to be covering Leviticus from chapter one through five. Hi, Jared. How are you? I'm good. I'm very, doing very well. well thank busy you so with... much for doing this. This has been a big blessing for me to have you read the book. So here we are, Leviticus one. Uh, I don't know if you want to read it or if you want me to read it. How do you want to go about doing this? Well, you'll probably be a better reader. I've got pretty bad dyslexia. So all right, I'll read it. Um, Okay, so the burnt offering, and the Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When an individual among you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering from the livestock, either from the herd or from the flock. Um, so one of the things that I, as I read through chapter one through five, um, so there's different kinds of offerings that we're going to be reading through. So one thing to notice is that each of the offering has a specific type of animal, uh, either male or female, or it doesn't matter. And then it has, a, it goes through like a specific way of to make that offering, which I thought some of those were, pretty fascinating. So just uh, pay attention to that. So I know that we're not really doing offerings today like the Israelites did back then, but I think these chapters have a lot of information to understand, like what, why is God doing this in the first place? And what did he want the Israelites to learn from doing their practices? Continuing on, if his offering is a burnt sacrifice, it is from the herd. He shall offer a meal without blemish, and at the door of the tent meeting, he shall offer it with his own free will before the Lord. And then he shall lay his hands on the head of the burnt offering, and he shall be accepted for him to make an atonement for him. And he shall slaughter the bull before the Lord, and the sons of Aaron, the priest, shall bring the blood and sprinkle the blood on all the sides of the altar that is the door of the tent meeting. And then he shall skim the burnt offering and cut it up into parts, the sons of Aaron's, the priest shall put the fire on the altar, arrange the wood on the fire, and then the priest of sons of Aaron shall arrange the parts with the head and the fat on the wood that is on the fire that is on the altar. But he shall wash his entrails and his legs in the water, and the priest shall burn everything on the altar. It is a burnt sacrifice, a food offering made by fire, which is pleasing aroma to the Lord. So what do you think about this passage? So the first thing that kind of stuck out to me was the washing of the entrails. And when Christ, because I think I'll preface this, I think all the um, laws uh, in the Levitical law were a type and shadowing of things Christ would do for us. Yeah. Um, even some of the sacrifices that were specifically for females in one through in uh, chapters one through five, I think some of some of those sacrifices even uh, spoke to the virginity of the mother of Christ, Mary. Oh, I see. Yeah. And so there's actually all these connections between um, the sacrificing of the animals and also the things that Christ would do and how Christ would redeem us because these are types and shadows 
of what was to come. Yeah, like here's a part where it says, a male without blemish, that would refer to Christ as being sinless, right? Um, exactly. And, and the other thing is, um, there's a personal connection between, there has to be a person, a connection of personhood in between the animal and the person. That's why they lay the hand on the head of the, of the bull, kind of saying, hey, this is kind of part of who I am that's being sacrificed. And Christ would actually take on human nature. So there's there's that symbolism too. It's like, because to put your hand on something is to almost impart part of yourself into it in a sense. Yeah, that was a good point because um, isn't that kind of what they do in churches still uh, lay hands on people when they pray for one another? So yeah, when whenever a priest or a bishop in the early church was being ordained, they would lay hands on them, pass on apostolic succession. Yeah. To so, so what were you going to say about the washing of the entrails and the the legs in the water? So when I first read that, I instantly thought of how when Jesus' side was pierced, basically water flowed from his inside in a way. Oh. Yeah. It's kind of mirroring that. Oh, that's pretty good. I don't think I even thought of that on its own. So this one, they wanted a male without blemish from the herd or the flock. The And then the other thing here says, he shall offer it in his own free will before the Lord. So I thought that was kind of interesting that um, this was even said at all. Yeah. So, so that's really interesting. That kind of really emphasizes that we do have free will and that the sacrifices, um, the at least the burnt offerings of sacrifice, were to be done out of the heart. And I think actually it's reflected also in the the ritual where you're actually washing the insides of the the entrails of the animal. The what was this? A cap, uh, ox, mm -hmm. or yeah, whatever you're sacrificing. Yeah, it has to be clean on the inside and the outside. It, yeah. It's not just enough to be, as Jesus would put it, a whitewashed tomb. Um, so in, in some sense, I think it also calls to the importance of our selves being inwardly righteous, not just externally righteous. The offering does both of that for us. Well, that's great. I think that one, I probably would not have realized any significance about washing the inside and out. But I think you made a very good point that it's kind of symbolizing not only Christ, but then ourselves reflection of what we're supposed to be is clean on the inside and outside of our soul. Well, it's also a reflection of how this is a type and shadow of what's to come, but also God desires to heal us inwardly and outwardly. Not only does he want us to sin no more, but he wants to transform us from the inside and clean our, our yeah. innards, our heart, so that we don't no longer want to sin. So it's not just about not sinning externally, but actually going to the source of the problem, which is our inward life, our yeah. vain imagination. Yeah, that's great. I think that's perfect uh, the way you said it. All right. So moving from verse 10, uh, if his gift for a burnt offering is from the flocks, whether it's from sheep or from the goats, he shall bring a male without a blemish. He shall slaughter it on the north side of the altar before the Lord. And then the sons of Aaron, the priest shall sprinkle its blood on all sides of the altar. 
He shall cut it up into parts with his head and his fast, and the priest shall arrange them on the wood that is on the fire that is on the altar. But he shall wash the entrails and the legs with water. The priest shall bring it on, bring it all and burn it on the altar. It is a burnt sacrifice, a food offering made by fire, which is pleasing aroma for the Lord. So it's more of the same thing, except Yeah. Well, yeah. I have another I have another point yeah. too, because after Christ died. He had to ascend first to the Father. It wouldn't have been holy for, because he says to what Mary, when they're at the garden, that do not touch me for I have not yet ascended to the Father. And then this kind of brought to my attention that God is an all-consuming fire. Yeah, but yeah. Christ is the pure and holy sacrifice. When he goes up to the Father, it's not that Christ is consumed because Christ is already holy. It's more like Christ is glorified and then becomes and is the holy fire with God and is purified because oh, yeah. you can go too far with the analogy that this is, but basically what, what I would say is crisis. It, it's a reflection of Christ's ascension to God yeah. after his death and burial. It's, it's not at all a reference that Christ needed to be purified. It's more of a reference to Christ's ascension and, an emphasis that he is God. I think in the previous chapters, we did establish it was Yahweh was actually Christ that is with the Israelites now. So it's right. Jesus himself. It's kind of referencing uh, Jesus as he became flesh. And then the sacrifice of his sacrifice is kind of like what all the symbolic sacrifices all leading towards, right? Well, it's also it's also just as much about moving our will to God as well because there's a synergistic nature to salvation like we we have to turn away from our sin and turn to god that's the importance of the free will that was mentioned in uh, yeah that's a great point you're very very smart because i would not have picked some of those things up if his offerings to the lord is burnt sacrifice of the birds then he shall bring his offerings from the turtle doves or from young pigeons the priest shall Bring it to the altar, wring off its head, burn it on the altar. Its blood shall be drained out from the side of the altar. He shall remove its entrails with his feathers and throw it onto the east side of the altar to the place of the ashes. So what do you think this is about? I'm, I think anytime like turtle doves is referenced in Leviticus, I, I, I'm reminded of the Holy Spirit. I'm not entirely sure why. Bring off its head on the burnt altar. Its blood shall be drained out on the side of the altar. He shall remove its entrails with its feathers and throw it to the east side of the altar to the place of ashes. Oh, wow. Okay, so I think this is a great connection to the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit is going to go out to that which is dead, the ashes. And what it, the Gentiles is basically the ruins of, of humanity, the ashes that remain. And there's not much you can do with ashes. Ashes are um, pretty infertile, and, and there's nothing much you can do with them. So you might have, have the entrails of the again, feathers. It's almost like the spreading of the Holy Spirit to the Gentiles, because the dove uh -huh. does represent represent the Holy Spirit. Remember, the Holy Spirit descended like a dove onto Christ. Yeah. But and, how does and, that connect to ashes, though, the Holy Spirit? Because you said something the very first sentence, which I didn't understand. So, do you remember, can you say that again, about how this connection? Well, the first connection I made was the dove to the Holy yeah. Spirit. I'm sure there's deep symbolism on the blood being drained from the turtle dove, yeah. and the dove being a sign of purity. 
but it's also a sign of God's mercy too, because he knows not everybody's going to be rich enough to have livestock. Um, so there's that that aspect. Made a connection too. with ashes. Um, so, so ashes, yeah, being being that which is burnt up, that which is in ruins, that which cannot be assembled again, and yet we have we have um, the blood of the dove going on the ashes, which is that which cannot be rebuilt, being made holy. And mm -hmm. I kind of take that as a reference to God sacrifice spilling over to the Gentiles and then the Holy Spirit bringing life to that which is ashes. Oh, I see. So like where where the ashes, the Holy Spirit, once he resides in us, brings life back to the ashes, us meaning, right? Is that what you're yeah. saying? Yeah. Okay. That's, that's, kind of, that's a very loose kind of thing that i was trying I'm yeah still but trying it's to a good symbolism out. though i think uh you know the turtle doves and the pigeons they well, said, probably represent the holy spirits at least the turtle doves we know that for sure right well i think it's important to mention that the pit the pigeon is young so yeah it's not a full-grown pigeon so All right I think, yeah so probably not a, very much like turtle doves again. yeah exactly yeah. yeah no that's good uh, i'm sure there's going to be other meanings uh, regarding the blood being drained at the side of the altar, the way. Well, I think yeah, that's a, that's another reference to blood and water coming out Christ of Christ's side. You mean on the like the how the blood drained on the side? Yeah, okay. I think that's another another mirror. It's really interesting looking back at what what Christ did, and then looking back at the, the Levitical law. Because if you yeah. don't do that, this is just kind of really boring, and it doesn't make a lot of sense. I know, you know, that's why I wanted to reread all these things, because I think in passing, you know, like people just focus on it, like, oh, it's Levitical law, we don't have to do it anymore. It was something that the Israelites did. But I think you would be missing out on what actually the text says, you know, all the verses and why they were even written this way. You're missing out on the meaning behind the fulfillment. Yeah. Of, you're, you're missing out on the meaning of the time we're living because we're living in the fulfillment of that. And, and right. to not appreciate the the types and shadows is almost not to appreciate uh, what you currently have. That's a good point. And this last paragraph here, actually, I think it kind of showcases exactly about Christ um, when he got crucified. So he says, he shall split it open by its wings, but not tear it in two. The priest shall burn it on the altar on the wood of its that is on fire. It is a burnt sacrifice, a food offering made by fire, which is a pleasing aroma to for the Lord. So the way I kind of envision this um, turtle dove, so the wings are open, but they weren't allowed to tear it in two. So isn't that kind of symbolic of how Christ was nailed to the cross? Yeah, exactly. That that uh, I didn't even make that connection. So yeah, yeah. So this is great. So now that's we're, really good. Unless you have. Uh, anything more to say on this chapter, we're going to go to chapter two. But I think you made a very good connection with Christ and especially on the entrails and the Holy Spirit being um, the ashes, you know, the, or reviving the ashes that represents us through his spirit. So chapter two, uh, grain offering. So this is going to look a little bit different than the burnt offering. And there are some intricate detail about this one too that I think it's kind of interesting. So when a person offers a grain offering to the Lord, his offering shall be of wheat flour. He shall pour olive oil on it 
and put frankincense on it, and he shall bring it to the sons of Aaron, the priests, and he shall scoop out a handful of flour and its oil along with the frankincense, and the priest shall burn this memorial portion on the altar, a food offering made by fire, which is pleasing aroma for the Lord. And then the remainder of the grain offering shall belong to Aaron and his sons, which is the most holy part of the food offerings to the Lord made by fire. I think this is actually a really, really cool burnt offering because it speaks in symbols to the anointing of Christ, how Christ is the bread of life, and how actually Aaron's sons eating this bread is actually the most holy part. It's almost a direct reference to the Eucharist and how how that is now us Christians most holy offering the That's bread and the point. wine the other thing is if you think about it in the sense of anointing um you're basically anointing the flower with oil which is a re yeah. reference to the messiah and how he will be the anointed one of god and it also makes note saying that this is the importance of god's character that he wants to take care of those who serve him and that's another reason why that Aaron and his sons eating of this is another tie-in to to holiness because it, it is a very holy thing to take care of those who are serving you and they're part of the levite priesthood that means their only inheritance is what's given by god and the people right that they don't actually own any yep. land well so this, this is even played out in 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 christianity um especially in the more traditional forms like catholicism and eastern orthodoxy where um, the priests are, are called to live in quasi-poverty. They're supposed to be dependent upon the blessings of God. And yeah. they're also supposed to give out the Eucharist, which it's, it, that, that's why this seems like such a type and shadowing of that kind of traditional uh, structure in uh, the liturgical cycles of Eastern Orthodoxy and in the ancient the ancient faith. I kind of noticed that too when I was reading through, especially chapter four, I started to recognize some of the traditions that Catholic churches do within some of this text. Um, yeah, the, the continuity is kind of uncanny when you start thinking yeah. in terms. And I don't mean like continuity as in the same, but rather a more flushed out fulfillment if that makes sense. So the frankincense uh, is a resin that's fragrant, and that's what was one of the gifts that was given to Christ when he was born. Mm -hmm. that's, I thought this was kind of interesting. So, like, I get the flour and the oil grain offering you're actually making, whether it's just poured out just raw flour and oil or whether it's cooked and made into something. What do you think the frankincense has to do with, like, they have to physically put that within the grain offering right yeah. so what frankincense is frankincense well the first thing about frankincense is it's an incense it's something that you know fills up and you breathe in right so it's supposed to go into you the fragrances um, and and the other thing about frankincense frankincense is it's also what they use in burials as well so it does right. speak to the the prop the it does speak to Christ's coming because, of course, you have his birth. But, you know, that frankincense was actually probably used in his burial by Mary, the one that was given by the, the wise men, because they gave him gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But also, you know, frankincense, let's not take away from the historical fact that frankincense was just used to smell smell nice as well. And so yeah. there, there are also um, symbolic aspects to the temple 
worship with frankincense as well. But I don't think that we're going to get into that this this No, uh, yeah. I think in uh, Exodus uh there right. was passages about making specialized perfume for the tabernacle. I just thought like for the grain offering, you don't necessarily think about like perfumey smell of so I'm wondering if there's more to it, but I guess uh the Bible eventually will explain itself what the Well the I think the other thing it could reference um is the Holy Spirit. I think that that could be very much what it is. Because because the Son had to ascend to the Father uh, and then the Holy Spirit was sent out. If we're looking at this from that perspective, it actually does make sense. As a result of Christ dying and being resurrected and ascending to the Father, then we have um, the frankincense, which would be the Holy Spirit. So right. this makes sense in a symbolic kind of manner. Well, that's good. Okay, so when you bring an oven-baked grain offering, it shall be unleavened cakes of fine flour mixed with oil or unleavened wafers spread with oil. If your offering is grain on the griddle, it shall be unleavened wheat flour mixed with olive oil. Break it into pieces and pour the oil on it. It is a grain offering. If your offering is a grain in a skillet, it shall be made of wheat flour and olive oil. You shall bring it to the grain offering that is made of these things to the Lord. And when it's presented to the priest, you shall take it to the altar. The priest shall remove the memorial portion of the grain offering and burn it on the altar, a food offering made by fire, which is police, pleasing aroma for the Lord. The remainder of the grain offering shall belong to Aaron and his sons, which is the most holy part of food offerings to the Lord made by fire. So similar type of language, but the biggest thing here is about the unleavened flour. Mm -hmm. So I know there's a whole historical thing and symbolism about unleavened uh, throughout the Bible. I think doesn't that reference to the sin actually like so Jesus of the, the symbols of the leaven of the Pharisees. Yeah, because I think Jesus is represented as like the sinless unleavened if you akin it to Jesus being without sin. It's kind of make a point that every offering has to be unleavened. Okay, so no grain offering that you bring to the Lord shall be made with leaven, for you shall not burn leaven nor any honey as a food offering by fire to the Lord. I was thinking about this. Um, I think it's important for the symbol because men do not make honey. Oh, yeah. Also, men typically in this time, they didn't own bees. It wasn't something that they owned. It was something that, it was like a luxury item that you went and got. And yeah. leaven, I think a lot of the time, like how you would leaven something is you would let something ferment. So it's kind of a reference to death. Yeah. So I think I think that kind of symbolism is not appropriate because how, how is the way, the truth, the life supposed to yeah, I don't think there should be any death in him. Yeah, I think the leveling has to do with sin. Um, yeah. Well, and sin, what does sin create and when it's full grown is, is death. So I think it's it's also because a lot of Levitical law talks of touching dead things. And that's very symbolic with, with associating yourself with sin and disease. Yeah, you know, actually the way the leaven, it's yeast that's uh, went in for men. So it's basically takes up all the sugar within um, the mixture and mm. it excretes out the leavening part. The stuff. Well, there there yeah. might be a scientific reason for not putting honey as well, because if you put honey in a piece of, of dough, right. And you yeah. leave it out, it'll, it'll actually bacteria will form and eat the sugar of the honey. And, and then it may start actually fermenting. And 
creating sourdough bread. You know, it's more and then leavening. This is anything related or not, but I think so. The honey is also made by excreting uh, from bees. It's like whatever this, you know, the saliva or whatever they do. So it's like the thing that's excreted out of the animal. So the, the yeast is also like some sort of bacteria that mm -hmm. eats out the part that makes it leaven, the fermented part. And the bees also excrete out the honey. So I wonder if that there's any connection to that. I think so. Animals doing that. I think it's it's the most one of the most important symbols is that an offering or sacrifice is supposed to come from your labors. And it's supposed to actually be a, a offering, you know, kind of uh, hurts you in some way. Like it, um, it doesn't hurt you, but like it's, it's an effort you have to put forth that is inconvenient and that you get no benefit from, you know, something like killing the, the best of your herd and, and having it burned to God is... And the other thing maybe is because this is a completely vegan offering. So all the other offerings are animal related, but the grain offering is animal free. So yeah. that may have something to do with why you can't use honey. It also speaks to the um, the mercy of God too. Uh, yeah. He also, it's very important for the poorest of poor to be able to participate. Um, this whole thing is about... Israelites participating in seeing what exactly all their offerings, like sin offering and burnt offering, like they're participating in God's righteousness in a way yes. he considers. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And and um, they're able to actually bless God. That's something that gets lost on us a lot of the time. It's just like, how do I, how do I bless God? Yeah. You know, it's just like, what can I bring forth that blesses God? And really... The number one thing is moving your will towards him, wanting to desire what he desires. And, and what, that's how you really love somebody is, is you, you cater, you try and cater to their desires and what's good for them. Not to say yeah, that we know what's good for God, but we, you know, move our will in the direction of what he desires. Even though like we do by, you know, our will and our giving our life over to God. I always wonder too, like, what can you give God? Like, these were all participatory with the people meeting with God and through the high priest and the anointed priest. They're actually like engaged in offering things to God. Like, what can we really give him as a gift? You know, can we really do grain offerings today? Can we really do? Well, I really think like all the, all the offerings actually are fulfilled in, in, in Christ yeah. and, and the, the Eucharist. There's a mysterious thing that Christ says in the New Testament where it's like, when you eat this, you eat my flesh and my blood. And we're not exactly sure like how, how that comes about. It's kind of a mystery. Um, yeah. But we know we know for certain that it's not just a symbol because if it were a symbol, wouldn't Jesus have said, "Oh, guys, guys, don't leave me. It's just a symbol, guys." You know that would have been the isn't, isn't that pointing to the grain offering in a way then? Because absolutely, yeah. So you you have God these connections. Smelling this, and he's ordaining them to do certain things that he's saying is always like pleasing to the Lord. Maybe essentially, like if we're eating you know, like doing the communion, perhaps, I don't know if it's symbolically or literally, but perhaps the act of us doing that is what... It, it both purifies us and, yeah. and reminds us of the passion that Christ has for us. So so God is love. You have to remember that as well. And it's yeah. not love in the sense we understand, but it's love in, in the way that 
that only God can. I think how we please God is when we allow him to actually love through us. It's all interconnected. It's really, really quite frustrating. Um, modern mo In this modern area, we always want to divide and, and take things in their separate parts and categorize and catalog all these things. But they actually work much better when you bring them into a unity. Yeah, and I think God's kind of showing us that with all these stories, um, how it actually points to uh, us being united with Christ in the end. Okay, so as our offering of the first fruits, you may offer them to the Lord, but you shall not be offered on the altar for a pleasing aroma. You shall season all your grain offerings with salt. You shall not fail to use the salt of the covenant of your God on the grain offering. With all your offering, you shall offer salt. So there's a little bit more symbolism here. Uh, offering of the first fruits, which is they should have picked the, like the best grains to do this. And then also they have to use salt in all of their grain offerings. And he refers to us as being uh, light of the world and salt of the air. The first fruits, um, assuming this also refers to Christ as being his only son as offered as first fruits, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, but not only that, but um, it's actually a, re a reference to preserving what's dead. Oh, yeah. Like, uh, so, yeah. So, for instance, you have the heralding of Hades, right? Christ, basically, when he died, he went down to Hades to free the captive. But those in Hades were preserved in the bosom of Abraham. So that's kind of a, a direct reference to what Christ would do with the defeating of, of uh, Hades and the releasing the captives there. So the salt is a reference to those who will be preserved until the time of Christ. Oh, I see. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the, the first fruits is actually a reference to all of the righteous that mm -hmm. have died before Christ's um, death, burial, and resurrection. Before, Because these are, again, types and shadows, but it's also a prophecy as well. Christ is going to rescue all the righteous who died and were in relationship with God. and But that didn't happen until the heralding of Hades, when actually Christ had the keys to death and hell. So is it basically saying if you don't use salt, it's not going to be preserved? Well, it's a symbol. So if you if you take the symbol too far, it, stops, it starts to lose meaning. The salt is, is the preservation of those who died okay. in righteousness. So it's basically, it's a it's a guarantee that their death isn't the end. They will be uh, coming back. Yeah. Um, oh, that's good. I like it. Um, okay, so if you offer a grain offering of your first fruits to the Lord, you shall offer for the grain offering of your first fruits, fresh ripe grain, roasted by fire, coarsely ground new grain. So I, again, this is a reference to the righteous because the righteous, all of them have been tested in the fire you take abraham he has oh, been yeah. tested through the fires of tribulation as well as meshach and shadrach meshach and abednego literally tested in the fire so that's a that's actually a direct reference to that as well i would say so these these again are just so is this it is, saying that all the righteous are basically tested and yes by fire right of some sort of yes literal fire but uh some sort of tribulation or tested by uh, hardships that mm -hmm. they come out of it coarsely ground new grain not to mention they're broken you have to become broken in order to to be healed in a lot of a lot yeah. of cases so it's not enough just to be you know because we we all get tested by god and a lot of us 
break and get ground up into something something new. And that's the reference to the new grain, of course. So. <laughs> well, I can't wait for that one. Um, you shall put olive oil on it and frankincense on it. It is a grain offering. The priest shall burn its memorial portion, some of its coarsely ground new grain and oil, along with its frankincense as food offering made by fire to the Lord. Awesome. So here, this one also comes back with frankincense again. Yes. So this is the okay. So the memorial portion gets frankincense, and what they eat probably doesn't, right? Right, right. Yeah, I think that's safe to say because it's uh, referenced. It's referenced enough. I think, like, I think the reader would catch on to that because that's what I've noticed about Leviticus is it'll mention something two, three times, and then after that, it'll just say it'll just kind of nonchalantly be like, <laughs> and then the rest of it, you know, just yeah, kind of basically. It's assuming its reader isn't an idiot, but I mean, like that's kind of that's kind of a dangerous assumption. Okay, sometimes. so the burnt offering got male from the flock. It was an animal sacrifice. Grain offering was completely vegan, no contact with any critters, no bees, no bacteria, nothing. It had to be pure. And then now the peace offering, uh, they switched it up a little bit, so it's male or female now from the flock. Without mm. Oh, wow. What a reference. <laughs> oh my gosh. So male or female, that's really important because what did the angels sing when Mary gave birth to Christ? Peace and goodwill to men. Oh, so it's everyone. Um, well, not only that, but it's a reference to Mary and Jesus. That's why it could be male or female. Oh. The reference works both ways. Huh. So what would so say that again about what the angels sang the piece in the nativity the shepherds heard Luke two fourteen suddenly there was an angel a company of the heavenly host praising God and saying glory to God in the highest and on earth peace and goodwill towards men yeah so that's what I was referencing is yeah. that so you okay, so you're referring the peace offering to kind of make a connection to this but towards men would include male and female but you said uh, that it's reference to christ well, mary the offering is a reference to both christ mary it can mean everything it can mean so to speak the symbol works in all contexts that's what that's what's so cool about the symbol is it, it doesn't just mean one thing it means all of this yeah yeah um, but i think this part nothing. is good that this is kind of matches up with the other peace offering where it's allowing both male and female i think that's yeah. the thing whether it's reference to christ or mary or just in general of all men yeah uh, okay so let me read it again if his offering is a peace sacrifice and if he's offering from the herd whether male or female then he shall offer it without blemish before the lord so it's again without blemish well here's here's why i think it's important that that i specify it's not just a reference to men as it's, yeah. it's a reference specific to mary and christ because yeah. both mary mary was preserved in her virginity that's right. why it has to be without blemish and christ oh, was yeah. also without blemish without sin yeah that makes sense then if you read it in yeah. the yeah i think that's that's why i got so excited about it anyway sorry no, but that's excited. good though because it, it kind of rules out all of people because we are with blemished we're not without blemish so it can't be mm -hmm. all men, right 
Well, it also speaks to the virgin birth as well, which yeah. is one of the most important aspects of, of uh, all prophecy regarding the Messiah. Yeah, I think I'm in agreement with you that this refers to Christ and Mary and not the general population because everyone else is with sin. There was no mm-hmm. one without sin. Um, so it, we would not be without blemish before the Lord unless... It could mean that way after we become believers in Christ to be righteous, to do, to be declared righteous, then we are without blemish, are we not? After we so, come to Christ. Yeah. So then once you're forgiven of your sin, yeah. yeah. Well, that's good. All right. So he shall lay his hands on the head of his offering and slaughter it at the door of the tent meeting. And the sons of Aaron, the priest shall sprinkle the blood on the sides of the altar. He shall offer from the peace sacrifice a food offering that's made by fire to the Lord. The fat that covers the entrails and all that fat that is on entrails and the two kidneys with the fat that is above them, which is on the loins, and the appendage of the livers, which he shall remove with the kidneys. Then the sons of Aaron shall burn it on the altar, on the burnt sacrifice that is on the wood that is on the fire, as a food offering made by fire, which is pleasing aroma to the Lord. So what's going on with the fat on the entrails and removing the liver and the kidneys? That comes up quite a bit here. Well, I don't, I don't know quite yet, but I, I do know that the Israelites at the time were not allowed to eat any of the fat or the blood. Yeah. Nor were they, and, and the kidneys is where you actually filter the blood. Oh yeah, that's a good point. The liver also is where you. It's another filtration organ as well. Because uh, that's basically you can destroy your liver by having too much alcohol. But I mean, that's that's kind of a tangent. So and the fat too. If- if you yeah. eat too much fat, that destroys the liver as well. All these organs are actually really fatty organs. It could be a reference to our inward sin because all of these things are unclean because uh, they're they're designed to actually filter waste. That would make more sense that it's referencing to unclean parts of the body mm-hmm. that's taking out waste. Yeah, I, I agree with that. So what do you think about the sprinkling of the blood on the sides of the altar? What's all that about? I think that's a reference to Christ's blood being shed and uh, being sprinkled by the whip. So it's also that too, because he was he was flogged. And I don't know if you know anything about flogging, but... Yeah, it's uh, pretty bloody. Very. And it's yeah, designed and it's actually, to be very bloody. That's that's really good insight, though. Okay, so I've been kind of wondering about this whole sprinkling of the blood everywhere around the tent, the altar, and even on the people. There's, I think, mm-hmm. certain passages that talk about that. Now that well, we're all supposed to be covered the blogging, by, by huh? the blood of Christ as well. It's also a spiritual sense. So, you, of course, you have the the reference to Christ, but you also have. We have to be covered by the blood of Christ. So it has to be sprinkled upon. But it's that sprinkling thing. I think if he was flogged, that's his blood would have been shed like a sprinkle all over the place. If yeah. he, he was so I think that probably why it's not just anointing with blood, but it's actually the act of sprinkling, which you know today nobody would ever do that because considering how what they consider blood, you know, like with as medical waste, you know, they would never yeah. allow that. But I always found it odd that they could have all this blood all over the tabernacle like that. 
you know, like how much blood they would have to shed each time they're doing this offering for so many of the Israelites. So they, it, that whole tabernacle would just be like covered with blood all the time. It'd be a bloody mess. That's yeah. for sure. Yeah. Um, well, that's, but I do think they cleaned the altar. I, they I do, but I mean, think about yeah. how much blood has gone through that altar. You know. Well, I know they had a whole um, aqueduct and stuff to the temple for cleaning it. Yeah. So there has always had to be running water to the the temple and then of course to the tabernacle and yeah, yeah but all that blood blood goes into the ground and remember uh Cain and Abel's story where exactly Abel's uh blood cried out from the ground. It it doesn't just disappear, you know, it's like it's part of the uh God's system and whatever wherever it it's goes. A, it's a really sobering reminder of the the seriousness of state, how uh, brutal, how brutal we are. Yeah, we're basically causing, I think that's a visual showcase of what sin looks like, the destruction, and having to watch that, you know, like slaughter and then having the blood everywhere. I can only imagine. All right, so verse six, if his offerings for a peace sacrifice to the Lord is from the flock, male or female, he shall offer it without blemish. If he is offering a sheep for his offering, he shall offer it before the Lord. He shall lay his hand upon the head of his offering and slaughter it before the tent of the meeting, and the sons of Aaron shall sprinkle its blood on the sides of the altar. He shall offer from the peace sacrifice a food offering made by fire for the Lord, its fat and the whole fatty tail which he shall remove close to the backbone and then the fat that covers the entrails and all the fat that is on the entrails and the two kidneys with the fat that is above them which is on the loins and the appendage of the liver which he shall remove with the kidneys the priest shall burn it on the altar as food offering made by fire for the lord and if his if his offering is a goat he shall offer it before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on his head and, and slaughter it before the tent of the meeting. The sons of Aaron shall sprinkle the blood on the sides of the altar. He shall offer it with his offering and offering made by a fire for the Lord. The fat that covers the entrails and all the fat that is on the entrails and the two kidneys with the fat that is above them, which is on the loins and the appendage of on the liver, which he shall remove with the kidneys. The priest shall burn them on the altar as a food offering made by fire for a pleasing aroma. All that fat belongs to the Lord. As a continual statute for your generations in all your settlements, you shall not eat any fat or any blood. So what do you think of that? So same um, repetition a little bit over, but just different directions for sheep versus goat, right? Yeah. So sometimes like I think of fat as sin. But I also think of fat as like the good things of life. I mean, everybody loves the smell of basically cooking fat. Like that's what bacon is. That's why we like the smell of bacon. Yeah. Um, and so this is also giving the good and the best of our lives to God as a reference to um well he also says life is in the blood and we're always commanded not to eat the blood of the animal but i'm wondering so even though there might be some symbolic meaning but it's also kind of making a point as a dietary we should not be eating animal fat well yeah well also a very important aspect of uh anatomy 
is you know where all the toxins and the poisons yeah. are? They it's stored in the fat, in the fat tissue. Yeah. So if you're eating that, you're eating it's you're eating, you know, parasites, bacteria, heavy metals. Yeah. That's all good. those things. Like that. Drinking the blood's always a bad idea. There's a great way to get sick. Well those two things, both fat and the blood, do carry toxins. Um that's why we're not to drink or eat blood, but then I, you made a good point that fat collects all the toxins and that's where it's stored. So when it melts down all the chemical properties of that, the toxins would just be released into back into the food or us if we're eating that directly. Yeah. I mean, like now, now I think like it's a bit more different because we've realized, oh, if you cook it and burn yeah. it at 165 degrees, like nothing's going to survive. But yeah, back then you didn't have friggin' uh temperature gauges it would be pretty darn easy to undercook something it's also i think that even if you cooked it perfectly it may not even be good for us to eat animal fat because oh, i think part no. of it is that it actually clogs the arteries like if you eat vegetable fat if there is any like natural from fruits and veggies or grains so that also has protein and a little bit of fats in it too but well, yeah but i think animal fat um does do more harm to the body than well actually the opposite is true vegetable fat does more harm to the body and animal fat's actually easier to process and mostly it actually helps you a lot because you can only get vitamin b12 from animals meats and the fats but then you can only get certain things not to eat it, there's there's a lot of reasons you could have said not to eat it i think the, the biggest reason is it's the tastiest and we're supposed to sacrifice our desires for the lord um it's yeah. a it's a practice of self-discipline and of course you know yeah there are a lot of benefits to actually eating leaner meat like what you said lower cholesterol lower heart disease because of course fats can cause those things um, but i will definitely say it is 100 percent better to eat animal fat than it is to eat vegetable oil that stuff oh, is that, yeah vegetable oils yeah mm -mm. you're better off like cooking everything in butter but I think I uh, olive oil is one of the vegetable I, I think oh. is made wholesome. Because Make everything in olive oil. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. even yeah. all the offerings, you know, especially the grain offering, they were instructed to use olive oil and not mm -hmm. allow any animal fat with all the other offerings. So I don't know. There must be something. Well, there's a lot of symbolism with olive trees, yeah. too. Like there, oh, there's yeah, a whole grafting yeah. in of different trees and gentiles and all that too so i mean yeah we didn't talk this. about that but that's a good point the olive oil represents the gentiles right well so it also represents peace what do you do it's like here let me extend an olive branch to you reconciliation <laughs> so you have those those motifs as well yeah we should go back someday and reread that in that context uh, maybe saying something else all right so Chapter four, the sin offering, which this is, there's a lot of stuff going on in this chapter. And I, I noticed a lot of things. And uh, even Mark and I had talked about one of the things about whether the sin offering can be made inside the camp or outside the camp. We were kind of going back and forth on that idea. From Oh, because uh, Christ was, was killed outside the camp. So yes, yeah, so the sin offering from this chapter, it kind of... I think it answers that question that the sin offering was to be outside the camp. And the way I 
uh, reason that why God might have done that. So in Exodus, it wasn't clear whether it was inside or outside. We I, I thought it was outside, but then he was saying it might have been on the altar. So we kind of debated a little bit about that. But this chapter here uh, specifically says take it outside the camp. And the reason why I think he might have God might have done that is because the tabernacle is a holy temple, holy place where they were all to gather with God. So he wouldn't want the sin to be burnt within the tabernacle. He wouldn't want yeah, because yeah, sin wouldn't be a sweet aroma, would it? Yeah, it had to be outside the camp because that was representing. The world in a way that was outside of God's dwelling. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the children of Israel saying, when a person sins unintentionally against any of the commandments of the Lord that should not be done, he violates one of them. If the anointed priest sins as so as to bring a guilt on the people, he shall bring for his sin that he has committed a a bull without blemish to the Lord for his sin off. He shall bring the bull to the opening of the tent of the meeting before the Lord, and he shall lay his hands on the bull's head and slaughter the bull before the Lord. The anointed priest shall make some of the bull's blood, bring it in into the tent of meeting. The priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle some of the blood seven times before the Lord in front of the veil of the sanctuary. Then the priest shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar of the fragrant incense before the Lord, which is in the tent of the meeting, and he shall pour the rest of the blood of the bull at the base of the altar of the burnt offering, which is at the door at the tent of the meeting. Then he shall remove all the fat of the bull that is for the sin offering and the fat that covers the entrails and all the fat that is on the entrails and the two kidneys with the fat that is above them which is on the loins and the appendage of the liver, you shall remove with the kidneys just as these were removed from the bull of the peace sacrifice. The priest shall burn them on the altar of the burnt offering. The skin of the bull and his flesh with its heads, its legs, its entrails, and its dung, and all the rest of the bull, he shall bring outside the camp to a ritually clean place at the ash pile and burn it on the wood with fire, it shall be burned on the ash heap. Hmm. So there's a lot going on here. <laughs> so we'll start. So it, it talks about not, okay, I think this is a, not only the one the person sins unintentionally, but also if the priests themselves sin, they have to bring a bull. And I don't know if it says male or female on this. Well, one. Uh, all bulls are male. By the way. Oh yeah. Okay. Good point. I should have known that. Um. Yeah. So then it's a male bull. That it's not any other animal of the herd, but it had to be a bull. So why a bull to do this? Whenever and I think of bull, I think of something strong. I don't know if that has anything to do with it. In a way, Christ is always references the lamb. So hmm. yeah, I think this we might leave it open. Maybe somewhere in other chapters it might explain that. Uh, the other thing was, so they're taking the blood and sprinkling it in a specific way, right? You know, through the altar and then seven times before the Lord in front of the veil of the sanctuary. So the bull is like burnt up on the outside and, it, and it's, it's also supposed to be a clean place even on the outside. So it's not some ditch anywhere. And then it's mm -hmm. supposed to be on the ashes themselves. Um, but here, like the whole thing about dipping his finger in the blood and sprinkling it seven times, what do you think that's about? Well, the first thing that came to my mind was that 
uh, Christ's blood was on the hands of priests. What do you mean? Like oh. it was the leaders of Israel that, that actually had him killed. Oh, yeah. You mean the blood was on their hands, uh, symbolically. Yeah. 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 So symbolically, it would be appropriate to have the priest actually dipping his finger in the blood. And and it's funny that the you know priest just dips his finger in the blood because yeah. it's almost as if the priest is trying to not have the blood on his hands. Oh, yeah. And, and that's very much the case of what happened with the, the priests of Jesus' day. They very much didn't want to kill him themselves. They wanted to have the Romans do it. But why seven times? Um, seven times. So there's a lot of symbolism in the Bible regarding seven. Seven is the number of completion, of course. Yeah. It's the days of the week. I think it's the time of rest, meaning like after this is done, it's a uh, time to rest in a spiritual sense where we're no longer in worry of sin because we can repent because of what Christ did. And we don't have to labor in this way anymore that the Old Testament had to. Because everybody, like the whole uh, commandment, like the whole uh, culture of the Jews was structured around Sabbaths. And every seven years, they would have a jubilee. Yeah, but why on the veil of the sanctuary? So this, this Oh, the veil? It's a reference to the tearing of the veil. That Christ's blood would actually tear the veil. Um, and then oh. it would be the thing that actually um, has God dwelling in man. The sprinkle of the blood was basically what the, the Jews of his days did to him to get sacrificed. No, the dipping of blood is kind of a reference to having blood. Yeah. But that's the first thing that came to mind. I'm not saying it's correct, but... I think it's a good analogy, though. But I don't know if it actually what they were doing. Like, this whole sentence is, is kind of still needs Bible to explain what's going on here. Yeah. I think it's also important to understand uh, what they understood about it as well. Like, yeah. what they thought it was. Um, because that's going to shed light on to further um, fulfillment of of uh, what Christ did as well. Yeah, so we'll keep that one open. Maybe it'll, it'll explain itself later. So <laughs> Not all of these are so uh, overt, I'm finding. But here, like when they took that bull out of the camp for the sin offering, so here says that so they were supposed to take it outside the camp to a ritually clean place at the ash pile. And burn it on a wood with fire. It shall be burned on a ash heap. So we were talking about ashes before. So what do you think is going on here? Hey, you know what? My actual reference to the Gentiles works here because oh. the Romans actually took him out and he was killed among a couple thieves and he was taken out by the Romans, basically. Oh, yeah. Wasn't like... Uh, and he was, he was taken on top of a hill. It was called the yeah, place but of the uh, what would they call that little ravine where they threw all the dead bodies? What was that? Uh, they called it Gehenna. Wait, no. Yeah. Wasn't that what, next to Gehenna? that hill? So Christ was crucified in Golgotha, which means the place of the skull, which was also um, where Goliath was killed. I think it does kind of point to where Christ was crucified and maybe how he was crucified because it says ritually clean place. You know, that would have been a sacred ground where he was crucified. Yeah, um, because I think it actually was where uh, David killed Goliath. Uh, actually, Golgotha, where David 
kill Goliath. Golgatha is where Goliath's head was buried. That's why that's why Golgatha means the place of the skull. Because it was a reference to David. Oh, okay. Yeah. So what does that have to do with the where Christ was crucified? You're saying it's the same place? Um, that's where his cross was. Okay. Outside Jerusalem. So Jesus was crucified at the spot outside Jerusalem called Golgatha. So yeah. Which is called the place of the skull. Yep. Okay. So was that like a ritually clean place? It was definitely, it would have to be because it's a memorial, King David. So it would have had to be. Yeah. So the sin offering. Oh, you know what? I think I'm getting it now. So the, the other reason for I think the sin offering is outside where it's mentioning like this is because Christ died for all our sins, right? So that was... Yeah. He was a sin offering, was he not? Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that's why he was taken out of the city. He was taken out of Jerusalem to be killed. So now that makes total sense. Why? But here's the other thing. Here's another thing. It was actually decided upon his killing inside of Jerusalem, and then he was taken out. So the very thing that happened to the bull happens to Christ. Christ's what? blood was on the hands of the of the Pharisees and the priests. Yeah. And then he was taken outside. Right, and that's why the blood also stayed at the altar inside the tabernacle while the body and the of the bull went outside. Yep. Um, yeah, I think it does have a lot to do with the crucifixion. But there's, I mean, there's also other stuff going on that I don't think it's fully understood just yet. Well, um, there's, a th there's a thing in reference, everything, there's a saying as far as like prophecy goes. There's kind of like, this already and not yet kind of principle that follows yeah. biblical prophecy. So there may be like aspects of, of, of even Christ's um, death, burial, and resurrection that we won't fully understand and we're resurrected ourselves. Yeah, but it definitely connects to what happened in the New Testament and to Christ himself. It's so kind of uncanny pretty, how it yeah. kind of So unless you do that, you know, like reading back now, you know, it's like a whole new meaning of what we're actually reading right now okay so verse 13 if the whole congregation of israel commits an unintentional sin the matter is hidden from the eyes of the assembly and they do any of the things that by the commandments of the lord should not be done they are found guilty and then the sin they committed against the commandment becomes known the congregation shall offer a bull for is sin offering and they will bring it to the tent of the meetings. The elders of the congregation shall lay their hands on the head of the bull before the Lord and the bull shall be slaughtered before the Lord. The anointed priest shall bring some of the bull's blood to the tent of the meeting. The priest shall dip his finger in some of the blood and sprinkle it seven times before the Lord in front of the veil. He shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar that is before the Lord, which is the tent of the meeting, and he shall pour all the rest of the blood at the base of the altar of the burnt offering that is open, opening of the tent of meeting. He shall remove all the fat and burn it on the altar. He shall do this to the bull just as he did bull of the sin offering. That is what he will do it to it. Yeah, so it's just kind of a repeat of the sin offering. It's just in the case of the the collective but so it's an emphasis on the individual as well as the collective it's just as important in yeah. both senses and the priest shall make atonement for them and they shall be forgiven he shall bring the bull outside the camp shall burn it just as he burned the first bull 
It is a sin offering of the congregation. So what I thought it was interesting here is the process of getting forgiven. If the whole congregation commits, these are unintentional sin, by the way, mm. not intentional sins. So if they did something that violated uh, one of the God's commandments unintentionally, they were all found guilty anyway. This is what I said, that um, they are found guilty. So the whole congregation is guilty if they like didn't do one of the commandments intentionally. Uh, and then the other thing is it's also a bull too. It's the same bull offering as if the priest would sin, but then if the whole congregation would sin too. Hmm. Uh, and then the elders of the congregation shall lay their hands on the head of the bull. So it wasn't just like the priest doing everything that he did, you know, with all the other animal sacrifices. This time, the elders of the congregation, which could be, I don't know, 10 or more, right? Of yeah. To lay their hands on the bull before it was slaughtered. Doesn't yeah, because that doesn't sound like, like some of the church, not the sacrifice part, but it's kind of referencing how the church works with mm -hmm. congregation in a way. Yeah, I think so. I, because I, I see that as well, like. Anytime, like like the elders are gathered together and they have to lay it on hands, it's 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 like that too. But in this case, they're doing it when there's unintentional sin of the congregation, right? Not for like blessings and stuff, which is I thought that was kind of unique to read it that way. Verse twenty-two. Well, I think the most important thing to get out of the laying on hands. It's a symbol of bestowing your responsibility to the animal so that the animal partakes in your sin as a symbol. Yeah, because... It's putting your sin upon the animal. It's oh, both an act of, of confession yeah. and transfer. That makes sense because it was a substitute, right? For mm -hmm. So laying hands would mean that they're transferring the sin onto the animal to then become the sacrifice. Yeah. Well, now what we do is we lay our hands to pass down blessings. blessings. Yes. It's the inverse of that now, which is kind of super cool because yeah. not, we don't need to lay our hands upon an animal to get rid of our sin. But now we, because of what Christ did in taking on our sin and being the sacrifice, we lay our hands uh, to anoint others yeah. to, to lead us. That's a good point. Do you think like the Holy Spirit, is there anything to do with like laying the hands on the person to, you know, have the Holy Spirit come into us? Or is that just by prayer? Like, uh, yes, I think, prayer, but I think it's our temptation is to, as Westerners is to separate everything yeah, into categories. Like you have the spiritual category. And so the physical category doesn't seem as important. It's like, oh, we could just pray for the Holy Spirit to be on our leader instead of laying our hands. Eastern thinking is not so much uh, like that. They, you have to live out what the Spirit says, meaning your life is almost a ritual. You know, your physical life is supposed to act as a ritual as well. Yeah. Because the physical is a reflection of the spiritual. So if something is happening spiritually, it should be influencing the physical motion yeah. and vice versa. Like if something's happening spiritually, you motion it with a physical gesture. To try and divide the spirit and the spiritual from the physical is doing ourselves a disservice 
because we are both spiritual and physical, and God created us uni unified that way. And to say that the only reason the flesh is evil is because of our fall. It's yeah. not because our bodies are evil or the physical world is evil. It's actually oh, thinking that the thinking that, that the physical evil is is uh, yeah. the phys physicalness of reality is evil is actually gnostic. They were really kind of crazy Christian offshoot of evil. Mm. If if you studied them in history. Yeah, yeah. Because they, they I mean, took these ideas to their ultimate end, which was basically hedonism and nihilism. I mean, what God gave us, a physical world, a physical body, physical experience, those are all gifts. And we're still in mercy. Like, even after Adam and Eve sinned, where the flesh, you know, the thing that when they sinned, they said that, you know, if you eat of the fruit, you will die. Uh, and they didn't die like that day. It took them their entire lifespan to finally die in the way they yeah, did no, die. they all die we're all death i mean since then yeah. we lost our immortality so we're all definitely on the death path and the lifespan has gotten shorter and shorter and shorter anyway that without god's mercy i think all men would have been extinguished so i i kind of see his grace and mercy anyway despite our fallen nature you know right still well, has experience it's really important to understand that because yeah. it's kind of like what we talked a little bit about in the last um, podcast. It's like, yeah. I don't think our brains are designed to to handle the spiritual realm without having a physical body. I think that's ultimately why God gives us new bodies is because he knows it's not good for us to be separated um, because it's not the way he created us. He created us to, to have a, a local position. And yeah, he didn't want us to be spirits and like you know ghosts or something roaming around. Amos. Right, we, we, we want to behave. Structure, yeah. You can you can see in people doing psychedelics and stuff, they get into these lucid states and they start losing their minds because they're losing the sense of locality. Their reference points are all going away, and they're achieving what they're achieving knowledge that they can't. They're not ready for, it and it destroys them. That's essentially the story of Adam and Eve. Is it's not like God put the tree in them to make them the tree in the garden to make them fall, but rather God wanted them to pursue Him and grow an understanding of them, so that they would be ready for knowledge in the future. It's as at least the way I see it. And so yeah. the serpent came and distorted their understanding of of how they are to become more like God. And they said, "Hey, the the." The serpent basically was like, hey, I've got a shortcut. Just take the fruit because God doesn't really want. And that, yeah, that's why they he were put the being fruit sheltered. There. But, you know, it was for their own good at, at the moment because they were just created in a brand new, you know, perfect world, perfect bodies, immortality. They didn't need to know all the evil. That well, was not only that, they weren't ready to know. Yeah. Like, well, that's a good point that they like. We're supposed to grow, like we're designed as, as beings to grow spiritually and physically. And yeah. the physical side is to reference the spiritual side. And if yeah. you grow too fast, actually, that causes problems. That's you, true. It's like everybody has their own. But I also think the, the flesh, the bodies is given as a perfect gift. Although it's mm -hmm. fallen right now, but we were always meant to have physical experiences. Like... The whole thing that Satan's doing is making everything synthetic, synthetic yes. biology. If you look at all the movies, the future won't even have plants. 
you know, like they want to take away the experiences. I just watched a movie called The Pod. Uh, so in this futuristic world, uh, women were not having babies uh, anymore. They have this egg-shaped pod where they can have the institution grow the baby inside this pod. So there was this whole struggle, like, you know, like the women would not be connected to this baby for nine months. So they were trying to connect with this physical object, this egg that they would carry around and try to bond with it. So all the weird things, but in the movie, like there were no more trees and plants. They had this utopia of everything where they would go like breathe oxygen masks for like under like plants under this atrium kind of thing. And then they would have pods where they can experience the ocean and plant live plants or whatever like the simulation of everything so everything was simulated so the movie was just so weird like the utopia of like how satan is really planning it to take the connection of what we actually experience as human beings of mothers having their kids and actually bonding with them if that's taken away the human connection is gone and then also not you know like the trees and everything that you see around us that's part of our experience being outside you know it's calming it's nurturing the sunlight the the fresh air you know all these things that we take for granted because it's there but the future the way satan wants to design it it all becomes a commodity and no longer is free and available. And it's like everybody's just a module of what they yeah. represent. So I think it's kind of God wanted us to have that experience, you know, of the physical things that were given. All right. Verse 22, when a leader sends, he does unintentionally of all the things that by the commandments of the Lord, his God should not be done and is found guilty or his sin is that he committed was no, made known to him. He shall bring as his offering a male goat without blemish, and he shall lay his hands on the head of the goat, and he shall slaughter it on the place where they slaughter the burnt offering before the Lord. It is a sin offering. The priest shall take some of the blood of the sin offering on his finger and put it on the horns of the altar of the burnt offering, and he shall pour it on the, its blood at the base of the altar of the burnt offering. He shall burn all of its fat all on the altar like the fat of the peace offering, and the priest shall make atonement for, for his sin, and he shall be forgiven. So this is for the leader now. So what I found interesting here, it was the unblemished male goat. Like it was very specific. Hmm. Um, that kind of reminds me of a reference to Azazel. Of who? Azazel. So uh, there's another uh, uh, sin kind of offering where they don't kill the goat, but they rather send the goat off into the wilderness. Oh, yeah. Um, and yeah. they called the, the gate, the goat Azazel. But it, yeah. actually, Azazel is an angel from the book of Enoch. And Azazel was one of the leaders of the fallen angels that copulated with women and made the giants. So that's kind of, that's just like the first thought. It, it kind of has nothing to do with it, but it was just an interesting thought. It kind of separated out different sins for the priest, the congregation, individuals, and now the leaders. And each one of them, like now this is, they don't ask for a bull, only a male goat. So that's a, like a smaller animal anyway, like a bull is large, right? Uh, so I think when the priest or the congregation sins, they're required oh. to have that bull as a larger animal. But yeah. the goat is like a commonplace 
you know, flock kind of thing, right? Yeah. So, yeah, it's kind of like an accommodation. It's a mercy. Yeah, so the leader is kind of held to a lesser thing. Yeah. Well, it kind of goes to show even Jesus' parables of the one who is given much, much is required. Yeah. Like the talents. So the higher the level, the, the bigger the animal. Because mm -hmm. I think the bulls are not that common, but a goat would be. So here's the other thing now. So now we're in the common people sinning, similar to a leader, but now they ha do a female goat without blemish. So it's one step lower than a leader sinning. So here I'll read um, verse 27. If any one of the common people should sin unintentionally by doing one of the things that by the commandments of the Lord should not be done is found guilty or his sin that he committed was made known to him. He shall bring as his offering a female goat without blemish for his sin that he committed. He shall lay his hand on the head of the sin offering and he shall slaughter the sin offering in the place of the burnt offering. The priest shall take some of his blood on his finger and put it on the horns of the altar of the burnt offering and he shall pour the rest of his blood at the base of the altar. He shall remove all his fat just as the fat is removed from the peace offering. The priest shall burn it on the altar for the pleasing aroma to the Lord and the priest shall make atonement for him and he shall be forgiven. Oh my goodness. This, this, this reminds me of why God got so angry with the Israelites. And a lot of the real time, the reason God sent his prophets to the leaders and stuff, it was yeah. because they were, they were mistreating the poor, the widows, those. Oh. And I think because all God's commandments have accommodations for people who are less fortunate. And it's so, so obvious in his commandments that he accommodates for them and is merciful to them. So. Yeah. How much more were the leaders supposed to be merciful as well? And when you take advantage of someone God is merciful to, you reap upon judgment after judgment to yourself. Because I don't think the common people here represents all of humanity in a way too. So they are offering a female goat without blemish. Why do you think it's a female goat? Well, um, I was thinking maybe it's because female goats were a bit more common. It was uh -huh. easier. It was cheaper to have a female goat than it was a male goat. Oh, I think yeah. There's, there's, there's that sense of it. And I think it was kind of an accommodation of God to have for the common people who were of stature. Because yeah. in all these commandments, it, it, there's a theme that God really wants to accommodate so that everybody can participate. Like he wants to have mercy upon all. Um, and, and by requiring more of those who are in, who have higher standing in the community, he is actually having mercy upon them. The and a lot I was thinking of here was, you know, how we kind of made that analogy of male and female for Jesus and Mary. Yes, I this wonder if there is an analogy to it. I just haven't, I, I'm, I haven't flushed it out enough to see. So I was thinking the same thing, but I haven't seen it yet. So maybe you have something better. You yeah, but here's the thing. So the Catholic church system uh, tends to worship Mary. And so for the common man that kind of confesses their sin to the priest, and then as a congregation, they tend to worship, not worship, but they say they pray to Mary to get to God, which I, I don't agree with any of that. But I'm wondering, uh, symbolically, did they pick that up? Because the common people kind of represent 
the female goat versus the male goat or both? I actually think that that could be a reference because I think, I don't think it's necessarily wrong for Eastern Orthodox or, or Catholics to venerate Mary or even ask for Mary to intercede on their behalf because I don't believe Mary is dead. I think she's alive in Christ in heaven. At least her spirit is. There's also references in the Bible saying, you know, the the prayers of a righteous man availeth much. Mary was a very righteous woman. So asking her to pray for you and the fact that she's not dead and she's alive in Christ is... How do we know that she's alive in Christ and not dead? If... Everyone is resurrected later on. So how do we know that she's actually... All, all of us who who are... So how I see it happening... Because like in Revelation, you have the congregation of those who are martyred and the saints and the elders, which all died, right? Yeah, the saints are dead. Everybody's yeah, dead. The saints um, in heaven? Yeah, no, but before, before the final judgment, you have the congregation in heaven. And it's not... It's not just those who, the first fruits that are in heaven. It's also those who are martyred, not in the tribulation. But so I thought they were all going to be raised when the time when all the dead are raised in Christ. But see that so I think their bodies, their bodies will be raised. Yeah, but but their spirits right now are alive in Christ. Well, they so it's a sep- their their spirits are separated from their bodies at this time, and I think that's that's not the way God wants it to be in all of eternity so that's why there's the bodily resurrection so that when we die i think and i haven't fleshed this out perfectly yet i don't think really anybody has yet because it's a mystery um i think our spirits go to be with the lord but it is that's not the end that's not the end point yet the end point is when we are given new bodies yeah and we're resurrected um on the final day of judgment, which is at the end of the the world, the apocalypse. Yeah. I know this sounds kind of convoluted, but in a way, it actually does make sense to why you would ask a saint to uh, intercede on your behalf, because we intercede on each other's halves um, by praying for each other here on earth. So why wouldn't they do the same in heaven? And also you have the Lord's Prayer that says, I will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The only thing is, I'm not sure we are to pray to the saints or Mary, because it does say that we're not to speak to the dead. Right, but they're not dead. That would be the no. argument. That would be the argument that they're alive in Christ, so you're not praying yeah. to the dead. That would be the argument that Catholics and Eastern Orthodox give you, that you would have to to combat and overcome yeah that's a different topic i think we have to keep coming back later yeah it, it's not um, an easy thing to come to terms with either. right like it's well, I'm, i, it's I don't know you really whether that's right or wrong i just and i don't either but i will i think it's really important for us to give give people grace and not to come to these uh these uh conclusions about people worshiping saints because i don't think I've studied enough to not think that that's what they're doing. I really don't think like um, most Catholics or Eastern Orthodox are at all worshiping saints, but rather revering that they uh, repented and um, are made holy by Christ. And they hold that. I don't know much about Catholicism, but I think there are debates whether they should be doing that or not doing that. I don't know the answer right now. Um, But I guess as we read through it, we can talk about it. Okay, so the verse 32, And if he brings a sheep for a sin offering, he shall bring a 
female without blemish and lay his hand on the head of the sin offering and he shall slaughter it for a sin offering in the place where they slaughter the burnt offering the priest shall take some of the blood of the sin offering with his finger put it on the horns of the altar of the burnt offering and all the rest of its blood he shall pour out at the base of the altar he shall remove all the fat just as the fat of the sheep is removed from the peace sacrifice and the priest shall burn it on the altar as a food offering to the Lord made by fire, and the priest shall make atonement for the sin that he committed, and he shall be forgiven. So I guess there's two kinds of offerings for the common man, mm -hmm. sheep and the goat. Well, and you know what? I can't help but think about how Christ will separate the sheep from the goats. Oh, yeah. That's a good point. Hey. So I don't know if that makes it more confusing or less confusing. No, I think that's very helpful because the common man kind of represents all of us. And we are divided as sheep and the goats, the wheat and the tares. So it's kind of letting. So I think it's, isn't it all for offering mercy even to the goats, female goats, not the male goats, apparently. But it's, it, I mean, it, it says it's found guilty, but they're still forgiven as, yeah. as female goats, right? So that probably has something to do with it. That maybe yeah. there's mercy for even the sinners who don't necessarily know God. You know what? Now that you say that, I think that makes sense. I think there's still some mystery there. Yeah. I think it's, uh, so at the very least, it's definitely not our place to judge. Yeah, and I'm wondering why not the male goats too? I mean, it makes a point here. Yeah. We're a female goat. So maybe the female, you know, goats that don't know God, but like the sheep is representative of all believers, right? We're the sheep. So that one, I think that would represent the other half of the common man. So the common man that's sort of forgiven in in this context is the female unbelievers and all believers. Maybe that's stretching it way too far, but I, I that's kind of how I read it. Could be stretching it too far. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I think that's why it could make it more confusing. You know? Well, but I think you did make a good connection there about the sheep and the goat. I think that does have because God uses that symbolism throughout the Bible. It's not the first time. Well, and the other thing is, maybe we'll actually understand it better once the eschaton comes. Yeah. Because this, be, this could be an aspect of the Levitical sacrifices that is still yet to be fulfilled. Yeah, part of it, right? Because yeah. we're here. No, we it's that as of and not yet principle. Yeah. I would say I definitely don't fully understand it, for sure. But definitely could be something that is to come yeah the only interesting i found the part of that sacrifice was the goats although they're found guilty they were forgiven yeah i think that's something important for us to at least keep that in mind as we well and another thing is that men are to be the head of the household and so we're responsible for the well-being of our wives and our children so there's a mm -hmm. level of judgment that comes upon us that does not come upon women and children yeah so that makes sense right so maybe the male goats um they had that opportunity they were found guilty but somehow because maybe. of goats, they, they couldn't be saved right because yeah. um they and had maybe maybe it's it it's basically you were responsible for them you knew the truth and yet you chose otherwise and as a result your wife chose the others you yeah as a result your family did this in ignorance but you're right. responsible so maybe your family could have 
mercy upon them. Yeah, I think God is having mercy on the the women who are not the head of the household, right? They're they're not they they don't have that direct connection like the men are given responsibility over the household. Yeah, I would say they don't have that direct responsibility. I wouldn't say anything yeah. about connection. I think women are just as connected to God as men. I think yeah, it's that's just true. men are responsible only... for being the teachers and head of their household and yeah. And leading their families. And when men abdicate their responsibility, they reap judgment upon themselves. Because the, here's here's the reason why it's important for the men to be the head. Because we're stronger. And with yeah. strength comes responsibility. And and I know there's arguments like, well, some women are stronger than men. I was like, dude, you're talking about 0.01% of women. <laughs> this is like, this is yeah. a, a rule for society for a reason. Because it's actually a rule of nature like men are stronger than women and well, even mentally verse that says mentally that we're even more stubborn isn't there a verse that says that christ is head of the men yes absolutely yeah christ is the head of men and we're supposed to submit ourselves to christ right and and how that plays out is we love our wives and our children yeah but if we do not do that then we won't be loving enough to our wives to actually tell them the truth. So he's kind of having mercy on the women. Exactly. Yeah. And Christ is very merciful. God's very merciful. Like people often read the law and they're like, oh, he's so judgmental. It's like, mm -hmm. dude, you, you don't understand. He's making very specific accommodations. Oh, yeah. He's so that. everyone can and participate. He has like, mercy on the poor, the widow the fatherless i mean he makes that point over and over and over that he's for you not against you you know but he also does have to be tough and just like yeah well it kind of like at least from the last common man offering it it kind of shows me a picture that that's a just act you know he held mm -hmm. them all those responsible they don't get forgiven but everybody else does but he also separates the goats from the sheep well, and he doesn't absolve wickedness either. Yeah. Even he he both judges fairly. He judges fairly to all men. So if you're an evil commoner or poor person, you're still getting judged. And the other thing if you is, don't, if you don't actually they, seek yeah, forgiveness, yeah, they don't get forgiven automatically. They actually have no. to do the offering, which is in in a sense they were atoning for their sins, right? They have to confess. Well, it's a very direct moving of your will to god it's literally yeah. giving giving up your hard work that you've produced to god like you have yep. put time effort work love appreciation and attention into the cream of your crop and yeah. you're giving that up like that is that is as close to moving your will to god as they could get so maybe those female goats are somehow repenting and that's why they're saved. Well, I think it's just because they, they were under the care of an evil leader. So when you're yeah. under the care of an evil leader, you, you, you obtain more mercy than the leader. Yeah. So it's, well, I think we talked about God's justice playing out. Well, that, that's a good point. I think we definitely did some analysis. Some rabbit trails, but yeah. I think we got there. That opened up a trail for sure. I think that's something to think about. But I, I, I think we're kind of onto it, though. I think that was a good analogy with the wheat and the tare and the goat and the sheep. Okay, this is the last chapter for today. The guilt offering. Person sins in a in hearing the spoken oath and he is a witness whether he saw or knew about the incident 
and he does not report it, he bears guilt. So I like the, he's, this chapter actually goes into a lot of different what's good and bad. But I found this kind of interesting that like, if you know something is wrong and you witness it, you don't report it. Like he he's guilty just the same. Like, let's say you're working, you know, in, in your job and you saw something that was wrong and you don't uh, address it. That isn't that person who didn't report it is guilty too of that? Yeah. Yeah, it's apathy is is the poison that allows for more evil to take place. Yeah, and we kind of see that all the time now, right? There's too many people uh, going along with the sin and they don't speak up against it or report it. Um, so I, I kind of see this as relevant for today, for sure. Well, on a deeper level, you know yeah. why they're not reporting it. Why aren't they reporting it? They value their relationship with those who are doing the evil than they do with anyone else. So they don't want they don't want to look bad in the eyes of those who do evil. And there's nothing more evil than that. You like you want to look good. You you want to you want to look like you're one of them. Like you want their approval rather than God's. You want their approval rather than righteous men. How demented do you have to be? Yeah, and they're guilty under God's eye. They're all guilty. You want the approval of guilty men. Yeah. That you have to be guilty then. Yeah. Because if you want the approval of guilty men, you're going to do the same thing they're going to do in the future. Like there's no doubt about it. Because well, you want I think, Yeah, and I think they, you know, if if they don't repent, then they're guilty. Till the mm -hmm. day they die. Um, verse 2, or when a person touches any ceremonial unclean thing, whether it's a carcass of unclean wildlife, carcass of unclean domesticated animal, or a carcass of unclean crawling thing, and he did not realize it, he has become unclean and guilty. So this is pretty harsh, right? But there's two things going on here. One is for physical protection of not touching dead things. But then the other part seems um, more ceremony or symbolic because he's found guilty of touching a dead thing. What do you think of that? Well, I do know um, to touch death as somebody who's dying is to die for it. And so if you're like for the time there, they were not yet um, being redeemed. So to to even go near something that is death is to bring more death upon yourself. Or become unclean and guilty. So, yeah. so I do see the aspect of like cleansiness as far as not touching dead things to carry germs and death onto yourself. Right. Well, yeah, there's, there's, of course, like, there's, of course, I think that's the more obvious aspect of it. Um, and I don't mean that in any kind of like, Oh, you're just saying what's obvious. Like, I mean, like, um, that's what they would be thinking at the time. Right. Like, oh, it's unclean. We don't want to touch it to bring disease back or to bring further adverse things upon our people. Um, because like what they believed about um germs and stuff wasn't the same. You know, they, they a lot of them believed that the reason you got sick was because of demons, evil spirits. Yeah, unclean spirits. But God did make a point, I don't know if it's this book and the next book, about all kinds of what he considers clean and unclean. So they were being taught of things They're not to to do. But I'm wondering spiritually if it has some other meaning too because the part that when they said he shall be guilty now that's no longer a physical thing that's a spiritual thing yeah why would they be considered guilty 
if they touch something unclean like okay you know go wash your hand go like i understand the physical aspects of it like don't touch dead things but at the same time if somebody did it why are they spiritually called guilty you know well you have to think that the whole purpose of israel was to bring about the messiah they were to mm -hmm. remain pure and holy and that kind of yeah. sense yeah yeah and so there's uh there's that reference um spiritually and 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 so it goes back to the, you can't separate the the physical from the spiritual especially at this time it had not made itself known like christ had not made himself known in the way we know know him today mm -hmm. um, these were types and shadows so it was just the physical aspect of it was just as important as the spiritual aspect because yeah. the, the physical aspect was the symbol of what was to come in the spirit right you understand so to touch something that is dead is to bring more death yeah. and so if god allowed them to touch that which was dead then it, why would anything need to be redeemed basically say there is no uncleanliness in death but there is death is unnatural it's not supposed to be the way it is so to touch it is to partake in it to partake into death is to be dead so i think i'm kind of getting i just had a little epiphany so we're given eternal life. Once we come to Christ, we're no longer dead. We're alive mm -hmm. in Christ. So the fact that this is really referencing the dead that's dead, and that if you're going about touching something that's unclean, it's basically participating in sin where you're going back to death. Like, you know, what happened to Adam and Eve, you know, when Yeah, they, you're you're actually you're you're um muddying so, the symbol. The symbol yeah. is is like, the point of this is to point to the need for life. Yeah. And God's the only sort of source of life. You can't you can't get life from dead things. As a matter of fact, the only thing things will get you is more dead. So to associate with that which is clean to that which is unclean is to bring yeah. death upon that. Sin equals unclean, you know, unclean equals sin then equals death where alive in Christ equals eternal life. So, yeah. yeah, and and okay. so and then it also brings to light the verse where God says, where it's talking about the Gentiles is like, nothing is unclean for you. Talking in reference to Peter, remember where that point yeah. is like, now all these unclean things are made clean. Yeah. The, those were type and symbols of what was to come. Yeah, you're, you're, You are living out cleanness. Like you are clean inside and out because you accepted Christ and you're now living in christ you don't have to worry about these these laws because they don't apply to you anymore because you're alive well also because christ came and basically atoned everybody so anybody yes. who resided in him christ redeemed nature to life yeah human nature to life and will redeem the whole world to life and actually christ that. living in us is through us he redeems he works to redeem others yeah. And to redeem the world. Because there's this concept of we're supposed to make the world a garden. We're supposed to make the world clean. We have the power now to make the world clean. Through Christ, yeah. Through Christ. Yeah. So now it's not useful to think in terms of unclean and clean, but to think in Christ making all things clean. Yeah, because we're made clean. So if we're made clean, we can now touch Plus, anything. Yeah. And exactly. bring that cleansiness to it through Christ. So, yeah, I think I see it. Maybe I'm not communicating that perfectly, but...
Well, it's really hard to communicate. It's such a deep idea. Yeah. It's really hard to communicate. I don't even think I'm I'm not doing a very good job of it either. No, you're doing fantastic. Trust me. You made a lot of connections and something that I would not have thought out. But now I'm reading this in a very spiritual way of connecting everything, what Christ did, right? And what it points to rather than just reading it like, okay, this is the sin offering. This is the grain offering. This is the peace offering. I'm now reading it through what all those things that you brought out, which I'm reading in a brand new way. Me and all the audience that are going to be watching this podcast totally appreciate what you, all the insights that you brought into this. Okay. Or when he touches a human uncleansiness, any uncleansed by which he may become ceremonial unclean, and he did not realize it, when he realizes it, then he shall be guilty. So same thing with um, touching on human carcass as well. Or when a person swears by speaking rashly with his lips to do evil or to do good, anything that a man may speak rashly by oath, and he did not realize it, but when he realizes it, then he has become guilty of or any of these things. Anything you might say rashly, whether good or bad, you're guilty if you realize it, right? Yes. Yeah, so anything basically you speak in vain without understanding. And it doesn't care if, if it's good or bad, actually. So it's yeah, just, no. Yeah. No, because like to speak without understanding of something that is good is just is the same as to be, to demean what is good. You don't want to bring down what is good and honorable. You want to elevate it, venerate it. And if you do not understand it, it is better not to speak of it. Yeah. Because the fact that you speak of it or make an oath by it, you actually... Um, profane its real meaning so what does rashly mean i wonder rashly flippantly without thought like without wisdom right without thought yeah, yeah. without understanding foolishly to yeah. say something flippantly yeah so we should keep our mouth shut then when we don't understand things or don't yeah because god doesn't care if you even if you say something good so guilty yeah if you if you don't mean it but you say something yeah. good you might as well have said nothing yeah. When he becomes guilty, one of these things, he shall confess that he has sinned in that thing, and he shall bring his guilt offering to the Lord for his sin, that which he has committed a female from the flock, a lamb or a goat, for a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him concerning his sin. So now we're still doing a female instead of a male, a lamb or a goat, which is still the wheat and the tear, right? If symbolically. Mm -hmm. so it goes back to that reference of uh, yeah. different judgments for different res people who are yeah. respons of responsibility. If he cannot afford an animal, then he shall bring for his guilt offering an account of the sin that he committed, two turtle doves and two or two pigeons to the Lord, one for the sin offering and one for the burnt offering. He shall bring them to the priest who shall offer one of the sin offering first. He will wring off his head as his neck, but he shall not sever it. Then he shall sprinkle some of the blood of the sin offering on the side of the altar, and the rest of the blood shall be poured out on the base of the altar. It's a sin offering. But the second he shall treat as a burnt offering according to the regulation. The priest shall make atonement for him for his sin that he committed, and he shall be forgiven. This is only if he can't afford an animal. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Two. Okay. But if he cannot afford to bring two turtle doves or two pigeons, he shall bring for his offering for the sin that he committed one tenth of epoch of wheat of flour for a sin offering. He shall not place olive oil on it and shall not put frankincense on it for it's a sin offering. So this is kind of interesting here, though. Uh, that's kind of 
that reminds me, it's like a reference to Christ was, uh, when he died, he did not yet ascend. He was not yet anointed at, on God's right hand. Oh, yeah. That's the first thing that came to my mind. And the other thing, because this is a sin offering, they don't get to put olive oil on it or frankincense on it because that was only reserved for the grain offering. So those were like olive oil. I, I think it doesn't that mean the anointing. So they mm -hmm. were anointing. And he shall bring the priest and the priest shall scoop out a handful from his as a memorial portion burning on the altar as food offering to the Lord made by fire. It's a sin offering. The priest shall make atonement for him concerning his sin and he committed from any one of these offenses, he shall be forgiven. The remainder of the belong to the priest, like the grain offering. Offering with restitution. I find this one really interesting. Uh, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, when a person acts unfaithfully and sins unintentionally in regard to the holy things of the Lord, then for his restitution offering to the Lord, he shall bring a ram without a blemish from the flock or its equivalent in your estimation in silver shekels uh, using the sanctuary shekels for a guilt offering. He shall repay that sin that he committed with regard to the holy thing and shall add a fifth to it and give it to the priest. The priest shall make atonement for him with the ram offering and he shall be forgiven. They have to bring a, a ram. So there's restitution. And if they don't, if they don't bring a ram, then they have to pay in shekels. So they actually have to give money and then add a fifth to it to give it to the priest. Hmm. You know what this kind of reminds me of? The way Catholicism, they give money for atonement of their sins. Oh, like indulgences? Yeah. like rest yeah. I don't know. I mean, if they got it from this. But I just find this kind of interesting that all of a sudden, huh. you know, they're there, actually... I always think money. anytime money is referenced, I think of the betrayal of... Judas. Judas? Oh, yeah. The silver shekels for a guilt. Yeah. Jesus was a guilt offering, so to speak. And he actually wound up throwing the silver back in the at the priests. Remember? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Because he felt guilty. So I think there is a connection there. Yeah. The Judas. Yeah. That's a good point. Okay. So if a person says unintentionally, does any one of those things by the commandment of the Lord shall... Should not be done and is found guilty, he shall bear his inequity. He shall bring to the priest a ram without a blemish from the flock or its equivalent value for a guilt offering. The priest shall make an atonement for him concerning his error and that he made unintentionally and should she shall be forgiven. It is a guilt offering. He has indeed incurred guilt before the Lord. So the here thing is that they have to actually find him guilty. It's not like automatic. Mm -hmm. uh, the priests are the ones who are going to be looking into whether it's an error that he made unintentionally and he shall be forgiven. So if the priests say that he's guilty, then he has to make restitution. So this is a little bit different than the judges in Exodus when Moses appointed all the judges to find whether, you know, to make restitution. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, but now the priest here is the one that's going to determine whether that person is guilty or not. And if he is, then he has indeed incurred guilt before the Lord. So what do you think about that? I'm not entirely sure. Um, it, it, I mean, it makes sense to a point reconciliation. I'm trying to think about like what the, what is the reconciliation for? I guess they don't have different sacrifices for different things you need to reconcile. You did something wrong with a sacrifice that you made to God. 
that you have to reconcile for. There's like restitution. I mean, there's a lot more involved with that one. I'm yeah. not entirely sure why they had to do that. Maybe we'll find out in future chapters. I think it'll make more sense in chapter six. Yeah. So I started reading a little bit ahead and it starts about yeah. talking about reconciliation with others. Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, so we finished for today. Um, but yeah, this was really good. I've actually learned a lot from just like oh, dwelling on it and thinking yeah, about it. For sure. You had a lot of insight, I think, that made a big difference in understanding what all these offerings were all about. Um, so we'll, well continue. You helped me a lot to understand it as well because you, you made quite a few really good points that I was really having a hard time with. That's why I love to do these Bible studies because it's helps you know hopefully it'll help all the people that are watching too um and i definitely learn from them this is kind of helps my memory to kind of put all the pieces together okay so thank you so much and yeah uh, and thank you for having me on oh yeah you're great and awesome and i hope you continue um next week with this whenever you have time thank you for doing everything this is perfect so i'm looking forward to the next one all right bye